Hello and welcome to another episode of the County Cricket Podcast in association with our friends at Bear Crickets. I'm your host, Aaron, aka the Cricket Connoisseur, and joining me on my left for today's very special episode of TCCP is none other than Derbyshire County Cricket Club's Chief Heritage Officer, Statistician and Club Photographer, Mr David Griffin. So Griff, first things first, mate, thank you very much for joining me here on the podcast today. It's an absolute pleasure to get you on for a chat about all things county cricket. I have to ask, mate, how's your day been so far? Uh, very good. Whilst waiting to join you, I've been uh, actually doing statistics and, and updating all my archive work because this is the best time of year to do it, obviously, while stuff's fresh in your head and um, you suddenly realise, Darvish, you've had 10 new cricketers this year. So you've got loads of stuff to add to the photographic archive um, as well as the statistical one. So, yeah, it's been a good few hours um, since, uh, well, I, I was up at the crack of dawn, so we got the decorator in, in the in the lounge. So, yeah, I've, I've done four or five hours work already. But nice to sit and, uh, and talk to you about cricket. Well, honestly, Griff, it's an absolute pleasure. And you mentioned those hashtag Griff stats as we see them on Twitter and enjoy them on a daily basis. Have you got any Griff stats for us today? Um, I've got nothing specific for you today. Um, but, but I suppose the favourite stat is going to come up during the conversation we're about to have. Um, but I'll save that one. I suppose my favourite stat of the year, um, and I have posted this, but, but Derbyshire this year won more games than they lost. Now, that may not sound to the ordinary cricket fan like uh, anything to get too excited about, but believe it or not, it's the first time we've managed that since 1996 when Dean Jones was captain and Kim Barnett was opening the batting and Devon Malcolm was running into open the bowling with Dominic Cook. So um, it's not a bad stat and it just demonstrates, I guess, the, the Mickey Arthur effect. We've been waiting an entire generation. Uh, to win more than we lost. So uh, so that's my favourite stat, I guess, of the season. That is a mind-blowing stat. 1996? Yep. Goodness me, that's before I was born. I was born in 2001. Crikey. Well, well, well there you go. If you, if you were 18 in 1996, you'd be in 40s now. I mean, I was 34 the last time we won more matches than we lost, and I'm 60. I'm 60 now. So, you know, <laughs> you've got to go back quite. It's a good achievement. It is. It's an excellent achievement. And yeah, the Mickey Arthur effect is definitely taking shape, isn't it, in the East Midlands? He's been absolutely outstanding. And mm. Griff, actually, before we get into the main chunk of today's episode, which is part of a brand new series, might I just add, listeners, really, really excited to get this series underway. Can you just give us some information about the Mickey Arthur effect? What's it been like to have him at Derbyshire County Cricket Club in 2022? Because from a neutral perspective, I'm a Warwickshire fan. I've got to say, he seems to have just revolutionised the side. There's a new energy. There's a new sense of optimism. What's it been like having Mickey Arthur at the Encora County ground? Well, for me, having experienced the Eddie Barlow effect two generations ago when he came in in 1976, it is very, very simple. It's Well, it's simple to say. To do, it's another matter. But if you ask Mickey what he's done, he'll tell you it's exactly what Barlow done. He's simply engendered belief. Now, that sounds simple, um, but to those of us who haven't got a clue how to start on engendering belief in others, it, it kind of appears to be a magical kind of thing. But there's got to be something in somebody's character that is able to take players who a year ago only managed to win six games in all competitions 
to then win nine, for example, in the T20 and propel us towards the quarterfinals. There's got to be something in it. And I think he's a, he's clearly a shrewd judge of character. And I think he likes character. I think he, he majors on character, on personality. And giving people the job, the, the, telling them what the job is and telling them to go out and do it. Um, and you've only got to look at some of the younger players like Anuj Dahl and Brooke Guest and Sam Connors to see the response. You know, tell them what the job is, tell them to go out and do it um, and give them the belief to do it. And they've gone and done it. But at the other end of the scale, you've got a player like Wayne Madsen, the kind of the 21st century legend of Derbyshire, topping the, you know, averaging 60 plus and, and leading the run scoring charts in the championship. He's 39 come January. So he's been able to do something with Wayne as well. I mean, Wayne's obviously had a great career, but he's, he's even gone to a higher level this year. So it's a magical, but most of all, I think, he's, he's put a smile on everybody's face. You know, people are enjoying watching Derbyshire play and the players seem to be enjoying it. He's always got a smile on his face. Um, and I'll just tell you one very little story and it just sums up Mickey's own impact. We played at Hove in the Championship at the back end of June and Derbyshire were bowling and he just decided to do a lap of the, the ground, as he does, you know, walks around the road. And quite a lot of Derbyshire supporters relatively speaking, had gone to the game and was sitting mainly in the shark stand. And as he walked past, there was just this spontaneous round of applause for Mickey as he walked past. And I, it sends a shiver down my back now, repeating it. And I said on Twitter at the time, I'd never seen that happen for a Derbyshire coach to get just a, a round of applause as he walked around about it. And it was from people who just sensed that this guy's brought something new, fresh and meaningful to, to Derbyshire. So... That's kind of the Mickey effect. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. It certainly is, Griffin. That's a lovely story. That really is a fantastic mm. story. And it's been brilliant to see as well. Because I have got a soft spot for Derbyshire. I think a lot of county fans have. Obviously, there is a lot of conversation when it comes to their, their future with the high performance <laughs> review and all of that stuff. Luckily, we're not going to get into that today because this would be a 10, 12 hour long episode. <laughs> we could both discuss that at great length and our objections to it. But... I've always loved Derbyshire and it is great to see that renewed sense of optimism and hope at the club and long may it continue because with Mickey yep. Arthur at the helm, good things look as though they're definitely coming the way of Derbyshire County Cricket Club and talking of good things which have happened to Derbyshire in the past this is, I've got to introduce our brand new series which is what we're here to discuss today. This is the pilot episode of our brand new TCCP County Cricket Heritage Series. Now, I've been wanting to do this since mid-July. During July, I had a little bit of an epiphany. I started reading into the history of the county circuit and I was just immediately hooked. And ever since, I've wanted to do a, a heritage series here on the podcast. And what better place to start than with one of the teams which actually inspired me in the first place, which was Derbyshire's 1936 County Championship winning team. So Griff, before we get into the season itself, we talk about the key moments, the highlights, the key protagonists from the 1936 season itself. In terms of the years that led up to 1936, was there anything at all that suggested that Derbyshire County Cricket Club could become the champions of England and Wales? Were there any signs, any omens that this group, this core, could produce something special per se? Well, there was in the immediate lead up to 1936, but going back historically, there wasn't. Of course, Derbyshire lost their first class status at one point 
Um, and when the county championship was formalised in 1890, Derbyshire weren't part of it. They only joined it in 1895. And they did reasonably well. They, they had a fifth place and a seventh place, but largely through until the 1920s, it was a period of largely poor performing, lower reaches of the championship, culminated, of course, in the 1920 season when Derbyshire did what no other county's done and lost every single game they played. There was one match they didn't lose, and that was the game against Knotts, which was rained off without a ball bowled. Um, but in 1914, just before World War I began, the then committee asked Sam Cadman, who had been one of the stalwarts of Derbyshire cricket in the, this, the early part of the 20th century, to start up um, a nursery, which we'd, we'd call an academy today, I guess. And they engaged a guy called Blackledge from Surrey. He was a former Surrey cricketer and said, will you come and run the nursery and also play for Derbyshire in 1915? And the tragedy was that Blackledge then died during the, the, the First World War. He's one of seven Derbyshire cricketers or coaches to die during the war. But the idea of the nursery still was, was although in its infancy, was still um, an important part of Derbyshire cricket going through to the 1920s. And a captain called Guy Jackson, who was, who'd been in the army as a captain, um, took over the captaincy of Derbyshire and the general consensus was we've got to look at locally produced cricketers there's a huge amount of talent in the coal fields but these coal miners are not coming to play for Derbyshire we're getting too many people who knew the captain or there were you know we, we had loads of people with double-barreled names and and, and posh schoolboy you know who came to play for Derbyshire and they said this has got to change and so it did and to bring us up to date to the 1930s, of course, in 1930, um, let me get the years exactly right, 1933, we finished sixth in the championship and then finished third, second and then first, then dropped back to third and fifth. So, yes, absolutely. In the lead up to 36, there was a definite expectation because they'd finished sixth, third, second. Uh, and, of course, they'd done it with largely locally produced cricketers, many of them from the coalfield, and many of them born in Derbyshire. Ten of the, I think there were 14 professionals in the year that they won the championship, and ten of them were born in Derbyshire. See, it's staggering, isn't it? And, in fact, you mentioned that. So there was a fantastic stat, a fantastic stat, which I actually read from Derbyshire's website. Griff, I believe that you actually wrote this article. But during the Lancashire game, in July of that very same year, 1936, the entire starting yep. 11 were born in Derbyshire. And that has not happened in county cricket since. It's a remarkable achievement and just goes to show the strength of that nursery setup that was set up by Sam Cadman and the club itself. And that leads me beautifully to my next question. In terms of the influence of Sam Cadman as both a coach and I suppose the architect of that nursery setup, how pivotal, how important was his role in developing that side of 1936? Well, he identified a lot of the cricketers in the first place, obviously, then passed them really to Guy Jackson, who was the man who came in and, and moulded that side. Because, of course, of course, Harry Elliott, for example, a wicketkeeper who lied about his age in order to get a contract, um, he, he made his debut in 1927. So, I mean, he, he'd been in the side for a while before they won the championship. But I think he he recognised that, that the thing with coal miners, that 
there's long since been this this argument about Derbyshire cricket that to win they've got to win against the odds. Let's face it, there's never been a Peter May or a Wally Hammond played for Derbyshire. Derbyshire has been the, the county is a rugged one. It's a flinty one. It's a, it's one with with wonderful landscapes, but it can occasionally look very bleak. Um, and out from that sort of rocky outcrop, if you like, came these nuggety tough cricketers who who brook no quarter but of course needed some careful handling and that's where Cadman certainly would have come in alongside Guy Jackson and then the subsequent captain who captained the championship winning side Arthur Walker Richardson who was a businessman a public schoolboy, uh, and of course never made a first class century but had this unique talent a little bit I guess like Mike Braley uh, would be a, a, a good comparison of an intellectual captain, but who had the nous to bring together this disparate group of of, um, of strong, uncompromising men who most certainly would have spoken their mind, uh, both in the dressing room and on the field. Well, it's funny you mention those kind of characters because there was one player in particular, before we talk about Arthur Walker-Richardson and the, the impact of his captaincy, a certain Tommy Mitchell, Griff, I want to know a little bit more about this guy because he seems like a very interesting character. And I go on to one of the greatest quotes I think I've ever read from a cricket writer. This comes from R.C. Robertson, Glasgow, right back in the day. But when describing Tommy Mitchell, he described him like this. There's something of Donald Duck about him. No cricketer so conveys to the spectators the perplexities and frustration of man at the mercy of malignant fates. He has much in common with the golfer who missed short putts because of the uproar of butterflies in the adjoining meadow. Would that be fair to say about him? Was he a little bit of a feisty character, per se? He was very, he was very feisty, but, you know, like break bowlers are. And, and I, I always remember just, just watching, and it doesn't always apply to leg break bowlers. I remember seeing Phil Edmonds once on TV in a test match, bowl a bouncer. Now, Phil Edmonds was slow left arm. I remember thinking, what's he doing here? Because you associate aggression and 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 anger and sort of you know all that sort of spiritedness with fast bowlers but of course spinners have got to have it Shane Warne was certainly filled with you know a real spirit for the game wasn't it and Tommy was certainly that I mean my two favorite Tommy Mitchell stories probably the one uh, where he described it and, and this is probably why he didn't play for England as often as he should have done uh, he described he said of his captain he couldn't but he couldn't captain a box of toy soldiers um, uh, which probably had a few expletives thrown in as well. Uh, but there's also a great story I heard about Tommy Mitchell. At the end of one season, we played Lancashire at Blackpool, and about a month later, into probably because of course the season would have ended in the first week of September, then early October, his wife um, rang the Derbyshire secretary to say, Has the season finished because Tommy's not come home yet? Um, <laughs> which is truly fabulous. Um, but I mean, Mitchell was—I mean, he was a proper pro. You know, Mitchell knew where where he could earn his money. But what a fabulous bowler! I mean, 100 wickets in a season, 10 years running, um, just a phenomenal cricketer. But yeah, I think he was—he was a bit Charlie Chaplin-esque as well. I think with you know, you, I, I think that would be a, another way to describe him. But what you do get from all of the contemporary reports of the time is that he was an outstanding cricketer. You know, 114 times five wickets in a year, 29 times 10 wickets in a match. These are staggering figures. And um, and I think he was a, a wonderful, wonderful character. And we should always remember, with spin bowlers in Derbyshire, that they could never buy wickets. 
Derbyshire's is batting, although in '36 it was it was not too bad, and throughout that period in the '30s it was not too bad. It was only really with the advent of overseas cricketers through the '80s and onwards that Derbyshire had batsmen of style and quality put the numbers of runs on the board. But if you look back to the that, that golden era in the '30s and then the subsequent one in the '50s. Although Derbyshire had a really good bowling attack, they could never buy wickets. They couldn't just throw the ball up, um, uh, you know, with with five hundred on the board. That just never happened. So, so you've got to be a, you've got to be a really really good bowler. There was no just tossing it up and catching in the deep. Um, but yeah, wonderful character, wonderful cricketer. Well, I think that's a lovely description of the man himself. And as I said, he was one of the characters of that side who really captured my imagination because of the the unique descriptions of him you mentioned those two stories as well they were brilliant it's it's really interesting to learn about the people who made up this side and another one of those characters who we've already mentioned actually on a couple of occasions was the captain Arthur Walker Richardson one of the main protagonists of this county championship winning team griff in terms of his personality first and foremost was he like as a person and then the follow-up to that, I suppose, would be, what was he like as a captain? What was his style? What were his methodologies out in the field? Well, the general general consensus that was that he got a feisty team and it needed to be handled shrewdly. And I think that that was, I think I've already alluded to the fact that he'd got this kind of ability to manage like really did. You know, he had to manage people like Bob Willis and, and Ian Botham. Um, but I think that... He gained the players' respect despite the fact that he wasn't a particularly good cricketer. I think to describe him as average would be, you know, at best, frankly, um, never scored a first-class century. But he's described routinely as being enthusiastic, a good motivator with a wonderful personality. And I think, you know, in life, people often talk about cricketers, but I think it applies to everybody. Most people like to have an arm around them. Most people like to be told they like most, but there's different ways of doing it. And some people do need calling out sometimes. But I mean, that that team was, was don't forget, there were seven test cricketers in it. And by the time we got to 1936, none of these were kids. You know, this was a team of, of, of you know, people always seem to look older, don't they, in black and white days. <laughs> but, you know, these look like people. You wouldn't want to take them on in a punch-up. You know, the Popes and Stan Worthington, these sort of people. And you can just imagine Captain Richardson, you know, with a sort of swagger stick and leading his men into battle. Um, you know, I think he was a superb leader, but he got a wonderful team around him. And Richie Benno always used to say, you know, if you want to be a great captain, the, 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 the answer is, well, have great players. Um, but you've still got to manage them properly. And I think it was that enthusiasm, is his general knowledge of the game, but I think probably his management and handling of people, um, which would have been interesting. But all accounts say that he was very well respected by his players. So despite his shortcomings as a cricketer, I think the rest of them recognised this guy knows how to bring us together. And that's where he got the, the kudos, if you like, for, for doing the job from. Well, again, that's excellent to hear and very interesting as well, isn't it? When you think of, of all those test cricketers, that were present in the team, they easily could have just dismissed him, couldn't they, as being an average cricketer. And instead, he had that gravitas within the dressing room. He had authority quite clearly. And they did pull off something quite special, didn't they, Griff? I mean, let's talk about the season itself, because it didn't actually get off to an amazing start, did it? In terms of those those first couple of games, there was a draw against Hampshire down in Southampton. 
and then against Kent, a 10-wicket loss, mostly at the hands of a certain Titch Freeman, one of the greatest bowlers in county cricket history. Alfred Percy Freeman, someone who may be um, spoken about at length in another one of the, the shows in this series. But how would you describe the start to Derbyshire's season? Again, it didn't seem as though anything was necessarily going to 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 come to fruition in the early stages. Yeah, I mean, they, they, it's interesting. We talked about the Mickey Arthur effect, winning more games than you lose. I, I don't think there was a particular worry about that because back in those days, cricket was played, as we know, over three days. There was a lot of attacking cricket played and not an enormous amount of draws. I mean, I was looking at one of the seasons... It may have been the year before 35 when we finished second or even the year before 34 when we finished third. We won 11 and lost 11. Um, you know, there was there was, there was was that sort of, I suspect, a rather cavalier approach to the game. You know, I suspect trying to close games out that, that you might lose and try and save, save the game perhaps wasn't, you know, maybe, I, I don't know, but I suspect Richardson's approach to it was well, we try and win these games, you know, we're in with a chance. You know, if you look throughout the 1930s, Derbyshire got the third best record of any county, I think behind Yorkshire and Kent, um, over that decade. Uh, And there were many who argued that in 1937, the year after they won the championship, um, Derbyshire actually had a stronger team and their win percentage that year was even higher than it was in 36, because, of course, that's how the, the title was determined. But... I don't think there would have been too much worry about that. I think the game was played very differently today. You know, you now talk to coaches and they say, well, we're targeting this or we're targeting that. And you get all the usual PR speak, you know. I suspect Walker Richards, uh, Arthur Walker Richardson's approach would have been, well, you know, come on, chaps, we'll win the next game. And, and that would have been it. I don't think there was any sort of sense of, of too much worry about that. And of course, Kent were a very strong side in any event. You know, they were, a, they were, as I've said, the second best performing side of the 30s. Well, they were incredibly strong and Titch Freeman as well. He's just a legend, isn't he, of county cricket. You look at the stats and records regarding that man. I mean, goodness me, one of the greatest ever first-class cricketers, in my personal opinion. Just a legend of the game in every single facet, wasn't he, Griff? Yeah, and Kent, of course, were one of the big six, the original big six. And, you know, Warwickshire broke the mould in winning the championship, I think, 1911. And Derbyshire, the only second county outside of that. And, you know, they'd been playing Kent since way back, I think, 1874, we first played Kent. Um, And they were a powerhouse. I mean, right up until my early days watching county cricket in the 70s, Kent were a a real powerhouse. And, of course, still winning trophies um, today, you know. Um, from such a humble place as Canterbury, you know, forty thousand souls live in Canterbury. It's no bigger than my hometown of Ilkeston. It, it's it is remarkable what the Kent team historically have achieved. But yeah, Freeman was outstanding. You look at some of those wonderful names they're like Woolley. Uh, you know, some of his. You know, whether he was a, a fielder as a bowler as a batsman, he, he was he was an unbelievable cricketer. Uh, and yeah, Freeman. Uh, you look at uh, if you go in the pavilion at uh, Canterbury. Look on the board where they've got, I think, the five and ten wicket halls. Um, you know, it's just it's just endless, really, that uh, his name just goes on, on and on and on, really. But, yeah, must have been a wonderful player. Yeah, certainly was. I think as well, on YouTube, you can actually find old archive footage of him bowling, which was tremendously fascinating for me as someone who was interested in the guy and, and his exploits. So, 
Again, if you're interested in that, I'm pretty sure you can find it on YouTube. I think it's an old British Pathé clip, if I'm not mistaken, but really interesting and definitely recommend it for any cricket badgers out there. But yeah, Titch Freeman in that game took seven for 29. Not the worst figures from the Kent leg spinner at all there. But after that early hiccup, I suppose, Griff, this is when things really started to steamroll for Derbyshire, wasn't it? Picking up wins against Surrey, Sussex, Gloucestershire, a draw against Essex, wins against Northampton, Gloucestershire on home soil in Derby. I suppose that brings me on to my next question. After those early shortcomings against Hampshire and Kent, what almost generated that momentum and what made that side so successful? What was it? Was it Richardson's captaincy? Was it the batting? Was it the bowling? What was it about that 1936 team which, when moulded together, made them so good at the game of cricket? Well, I think there are two things. I think the first thing is is the numbers. I mean, it is a numbers game and we can talk as much as we like about style and artistry. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's numbers. And we, we lost George Pope very early in the piece. And of course, George Pope, one of Derbyshire's finest all-rounders, his brother Alf was, was playing in the side, stepped up to 90-odd wickets that season. But if we take Bill Copson, um, you know, average 12.4 in taking 140 wickets. Just staggering, really. And Copson was a genuine quick bowler, you know, a proper out-and-out quickie, another coal miner. Um, you had great, great support, of course, because two of Derbyshire's finest cricketers, Stan Worthington and Les Townsend, were, of course, both all-rounders. Stan, Stan Worthington was tall, a brutal batsman, the only player to score a century for England whilst on Derbyshire's staff. Um, and then, of course, Les Townsend was an off-break bowler, but also a batsman who batted in the top six. So you had there batsmen who scored a 1,000 runs, but who could take wickets as well. Both of them scored 17,000-plus runs for Derbyshire. Uh, Worthington, 600-odd six, wickets. Um, Townsend, nearly a 1,000. So you'd, you'd got in your top six... Um, two genuine all-rounders and with George Pope who, who sadly was injured you've got a third and these of course all played for England so you've got absolute quality at the top of the order you've got Dennis Smith another England batsman an opening batsman uh, wonderful style um, contemporary reports about so early 225 at Chesterfield out of not much more than 300 uh, against Hampshire was was one of the great Derby shootings of course, you've got Tommy Mitchell, you've got Harry Elliott behind the stumps who played for England. But I think that that's the numbers, that's the, the performances, that's the great players. But I'm going to just have to, to, to look at my notes because um, the other thing, and I've already touched on it about character winning against the odds, um, a wonderful, wonderful retrospective piece that John Arlott wrote. And he described um, Derbyshire, he said, it's difficult to recall a side more purposeful or more ruthlessly abrasive than the Derbyshire side. Which sounds about right. You can imagine them walking out onto the field at away games and thinking, particularly down south, and thinking, right, this lot can have it. You know, they'd have been broad as who knows what from working down the coal mines, you know. Um, but then he concluded the piece by saying, shall we ever see a side of quite such gladiatorial quality in the English county game, I doubt it. And that makes me, just as a Derbyshire man, feel proud that Arlott thought that this was the most gladiatorial side that ever been 
in county cricket and he didn't think we'd ever see another one like it. These tall, broad men walking out onto the field, giving it what for. Um, I really, really like that that image of, of sort of almost invincibility with this modest man at the front from a public school called Arthur Richardson, surrounded by these tough guys. It must have been an absolute joy to watch, unless, of course, you're on the receiving end. <laughs> Yeah, I was just about to say that. It's it's one of those cases where if it's your team, brilliance, and you're reveling in it. If you're the opposition, probably not so, are you? You'd probably be a little bit intimidated by that sight. And what an incredible description that is from the great John Arlott. Goodness me, gladiatorial in style. Not the, the worst way to go down in history and cement your legacy in the county circuit at all. And Actually, we, we've alluded to that mining heritage, I suppose, within this Derbyshire outfit. But, Griff, I just wanted to touch upon that a little bit more, actually, because in 1926, there was the strike, wasn't there? Which was massive yeah. in terms of catalyzing this Derbyshire team. A few of the players actually started their careers off the back of that, because before yeah. that, they were working down the mines. In retrospect, just how big of a catalyst was that strike and how important were those collieries and those mines? in producing that Derbyshire team of 1936? Well, I think the strike was obviously a catalyst because it made the, the players available. I think in terms of how important the, the, colliers, the collieries were, um, I mean, there are lots and lots of stories about coal mining and about coal mining cricketers. And, of course, there was a team, at, as there was in most workplaces, actually, there was a cricket team. You know, it didn't matter really whether you're a policeman, a postman, or worked for the co-op or, or went to church. There were nearly always cricket teams associated with these places. Um, but certainly, I think the 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 thing about the, the coal mines was it gave people an opportunity to do something else. And I think it probably also gave them an opportunity to look at what they were doing down the pit and compare it and contrast it to what they were doing up top for example if you were a coal miner and you used to be in used to be in bent double um digging at the scene and then one day you get an opportunity to go and play cricket for derbyshire and get paid for it i can't imagine imagine that many of those cricketers thought that playing cricket was hard work because for them hard work was digging a scene now, it's not the fault of the modern cricketer that they think cricket's hard work if that's all they've ever done, if they're 12-month-a-year cricketers and they've never had any other job. But for these guys, it must have been absolutely astonishing. And to fast-forward to the to period when Les Jackson played, for example, from 1947 to 63, he bowled an average of 886 overs a summer but and then went back down the pit. And it was only in his last four or five years as a coal minor that the coal board gave him a job as a chauffeur and said so i'll tell you what you can drive the pit manager around instead of digging coal so it's no wonder that these guys were uncomplaining it's no wonder that they were they were happy to play cricket because compared to digging coal it must have been an absolute doddle um but i also think there was a togetherness about coming from the coal the derbyshire coal fields because and I can't claim credit for this. John Shawcroft, who, who wrote the three great histories of Derbyshire County Cricket Club, said this, that other than Glasgow Celtic, who won the 1967 European Cup in football with a team that basically heralded, I think, from within about a 20-mile radius of Celtic Park, 
he can't think of any other sporting team other than Derbyshire that's actually achieved the same kind of thing. In other words, a group of people literally born almost on the doorstep um, that came together and, and created a successful and a trophy-winning team. So, yeah, I think the Coalfields are very, very important. And I think I used a quote last week from Ian Hall, a former Derbyshire batsman, former Derby County footballer, who wrote that the headquarters of Derbyshire uh, is at Derby, but the heart and soul of the club is at Chesterfield. And he didn't mean the ground. He meant the area. He meant the area because, of course, you, you're within spitting distance of, of so many. Uh, well, not anymore, you're not. But I guess the coal's still there. But, but the, uh, the pits, the open mines, they're not. You see, that's fascinating. For me, as someone who isn't from Derbyshire, I love going up there, by the way, though. I do like the Peak Districts, lovely part of the country, to say the least. Chesterfield as well, Queen's Park Oval, beautiful ground to go and have a visit. But that's really interesting to, to hear. And I've just been captivated by that because, as I said, if you go on online on Google and you just see 1936 County Championship Derbyshire, you wouldn't know that story. You wouldn't know the fact that these guys were products of their lived environment. You wouldn't know the fact that they were so local. And just looking at some of the names from that team, you look at Arthur Walker Richardson. He was born in Quarndon. You had Stan Worthington, born in Bolsover. You had William Copson. He was born in Stonebroom. You had Les Townsend, who was born in Long Eaton. For you, as a Derbyshire native, Griff, the fact that they were so local, the fact that they were all pretty much Derbyshire products, how proud does that make you feel? The fact that these were, were literally representing your county in such a fantastic way as Derbyshire men? Well, it, it makes me very proud. And it's also, I, I was reflecting on something the other day because I went up to Glossop to, uh, for the unveiling of the Charles Olivier blue plaque. And um, someone asked me why Glossop are not producing cricketers for Derbyshire anymore, uh, because they produce dozens, basically. And I came out with the stat, and it's a really sad stat, really, that in the first 100 years of Derbyshire's existence, 257 Derbyshire-born cricketers played for Derbyshire. In the last 52 years, just 40. So... A, the, the trend is completely reversed. You know, we're never going to get a Derbyshire-born 11 playing for Derbyshire again. But although in my youth, and I think 1976 was the year, we had 16 players on the staff. And at that time, 10 of them were born in Derbyshire. So it's it's become a modern phenomenon. So it's even it makes you even more proud because the likelihood of winning the county championship gets harder and harder by the, by the year. Um, we came second in 1996, we came third in 1991. But again, you're going back a, an entire generation since that happened. And when you look at those teams that got Mohamed Azaruddin and Barnett, Bowler, Morris, Adams, Cork, De Freitas, Malcolm, Crickham, you know, these names rolled off the tongue. Many of them played test cricket. Um, and you realise, blimey, that side in the 30s must have been good. <laughs> because, you know, they didn't just win the championship, as I said earlier, and I must always get my numbers right. They finished sixth, third, second, first, third, fifth in successive seasons. Uh, what a six years that must have been to, to to watch Derbyshire. So, yeah, absolutely. I'm incredibly proud that I'm, I'm born of the same county. It's the only link I have with them, but um, but it's it's a better, it's better than none. <laughs> <laughs> It certainly is, and again, I'm going to keep on repeating that throughout today's episode because it's incredible, isn't it? It really is. 
I suppose as, as a Derbyshire native, it would make you even prouder. But just to have those local guys who came from such humble beginnings in most in most cases, I suppose, yeah. Yeah. for them to scale the almost impossible peak that is the county championship and lift that trophy for the first and to date the only ever time, it's remarkable. It really is a magnificent achievement. And that's why I wanted to do this series. It's so we can remember them and kind of continue their legacy in any way that we can. And just going back to the season itself, we've spoken there already about some of the results in the early stages of the season, Griff. But in the season as a whole, what do you say were the key moments and the highlights for Derbyshire in 1936? Where were the the key moments which catalyzed that victory come the end of the season? Well, I think that run, the mid-season run, clearly was was a, an important one. But I think it is, it's getting into that, as, as is often the case in any sport with winning, um, it's getting onto a roll. It's having a, a run of results. And um, at, there, were, there was a game at um, Edgbaston where, uh, and you'll be delighted to know, the Derbyshire won by 10 runs, um, where, where Townsend took 12 wickets in the match. Now, I've talked already about Copson and the impact he had on the season as a fast bowler and, and Alf Pope. Uh, but Townsend uh, took 12 wickets in that match. And then a couple of games later, we went to Worcester where we won by an innings and 123 runs. So these were games where Derbyshire completely dominated. These weren't close close results. These were, these were innings victories. Uh, and the innings victory, for example, at Worcester, um, we only scored 234 for eight and declared. And then bowled Worcestershire out for 64 and 47. Uh, Copson five for 38, Copson seven for 16. And that's the kind of result that in the modern game, if you saw that on the, the website or, or wherever, you think, blooming out, what's going off there? There's, there's things are happening there. And um, and I think that sort of, those sort of results, we beat Warwickshire again by an innings then uh, at Chesterfield um, with with uh, bowling Warwickshire. And again, we only scored 3-8-1, but still won by an innings. Um, so there were, there were lots and lots that we, you know, we made it, took great advantage of playing at Burton-on-Trent. We got the revenge against Kent, bowled them out for 184 and 147. Um, so, I think there were there were a lot. We got a draw at Sheffield, which was very unusual for us. Um, you know, and it, all the way through the season, it never really looked as if Derbyshire, you know, quite a few draws. I think there were four in a row at one point. Uh, and, of course, a defeat to Somerset in the actual uh, game that won us the title at Wells. Um, but by then, we'd got sufficient points in the bag. And then we finished it off with that great win at um, another innings victory at uh, Oakham School. Um, in, in Arthur Richardson's final ever game for Derbyshire. So, yeah, I think there was that run through the midsummer, and And because we had that varied bowling attack, we got a match-winning test match leg spinner. We got an off-break bowler. You'd got Copson, who was genuinely lightning fast. You'd got Alf Pope fast with 94 wickets. Stan Worthington bowling his brisk medium pace. So you've got, it didn't matter what pitch the opposition prepared. We could, we could, you know, we we got men for all seasons, as it were. Well, it's interesting to to learn about that, Griff, and we will touch upon the the conclusion of the season, in particular that Somerset game, and of course mm. the final game of the season where the title, I suppose, was finally handed to Derbyshire. But before we get on to the conclusion of the season itself, I just wanted to talk about two of the main protagonists, I suppose, who we, we've touched upon but haven't gone into detail about so far. 
And the first one is William Copson, who, as I mentioned earlier, was born in Stonebroom and he was the leading wicket taker for the club in that season. I think we've already mentioned the stats, but just to reiterate them, I suppose, 140 wickets at an average of 12.8. Staggering stats, quite clearly a magnificent bowler. And Griff, he had quite an interesting route into Derbyshire, didn't he? I mean, you'll know more than this than, than I do, but he was a minor until that 1926 strike. He joined Derbyshire in 1932, and his first wicket was the great Andy Sandham. I mean, it's quite the journey into Derbyshire County Cricket Club, isn't it? With his first ball in county cricket, in first-class cricket, um, something that's only been done five times by for Derbyshire, anyway. Um, yeah, but again, I think he was just another one of those players who, given an opportunity, see, the problem had been prior to that that, uh, and I could you could write a thesis almost on on the players that have played one game for Derbyshire because we've had seven hundred and thirty nine cricketers, and more than a hundred have played one game. And it's staggering, really, to think. I know you, you might, your pause suggests that you, you, your silence suggests that you're somewhat quizzical about that. But it's true. Over 100 players, one-seventh of all Derbyshire cricketers have only played one game. And it suggests that the, this sort of amateur environment in which players played was one which suited some people. It suited some people to, to have, you know, the local landowner's son playing in a game because he just happened to be available. Um, whereas the by the time Copson came to Derbyshire, we'd got a captain in Guy Jackson. And as I say, we'd also got a, 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 essentially an academy, the nursery, which was looking to be more professional. And they knew the players were there. They knew they were there in the coal mines and the coal fields. But of course, they weren't earning bad money either. And so it was a case of encouraging these people, I think, to come and play. We'd had coal miners before. Obviously, in a county like Derbyshire, playing for Derbyshire, Bill Bestwick was down the pit at 11. Uh, and that, I don't mean 11 o'clock, I mean 11 years of age. Um, you know, a generation before that. But yeah, I think it was just about really being given opportunities. And once I think that those players, and like Cops and like Elliot, like Stan Worthington, were given those opportunities... Um, I don't think there's any doubt that that would, would they would merge together and form a formidable team. I don't think we ever thought it would be quite as formidable, but um, but there you go. It's funny how life works out sometimes, though, isn't it? The fact that this unlikely band of brothers from the the different corners of Derbyshire came together and did what up until this recording, I suppose, has not been replicated. It's quite the remarkable achievement. And the other name that I just wanted to touch upon and I've wanted to learn more about this guy for absolutely months, right, is Stan Worthington. And there is yeah. some background story behind why I want to learn about this man. And that's because during the 2021-22 Ashes, I was doing correspondency for BBC Coventry yeah. and Warwickshire Radio, having to suffer through that awful series, the ungodly hours, and putting up with watching England lose wicket after wicket after wicket. But one of my most interesting stats that I mentioned on the radio, actually, happened during the first test. And that was when Rory Burns was dismissed by Mitchell Stark with the very first delivery of the entire series. And I wondered if that ever happened before. And it had. It happened in 1936-37. And the batsman was Stan Worthington, dismissed by Ernie McIntosh at the Gabba. And ever since I saw that stat, I wanted to learn more about this guy. 
And I've done some little bits and pieces using Wikipedia and different articles, Griff, but what can you tell me about Stan Worthington, first and foremost, the batter, and then Stan yep. Worthington, the man? Because in particular, into his coaching days, from what David Lloyd used to say about him, he also did seem to have that gravitas and authority about him, didn't he? Absolutely. I think he, I mean, tough and uncompromising. It won't be the first time I've, I've used that phrase, tough and uncompromising. I think the best Derbyshire cricketers have always been that way. And I think even in the modern generation, I was talking to uh, somebody about Stan Mortensen, Ull Mortensen, a Danish cricketer who played for Derbyshire in the 1980s and 1990s. Um, but he was as archetypal Derbyshire as anybody. He was just the same kind of person, this tough gritty uncompromising cricketer and I think Worthington was very much that he, he, he his role at Lancashire when of course he'd finished at Derbyshire was he was the assistant coach and then the head coach um contemporary reports again describe him as ruling with a rod of iron he was very much Mr Worthington um but I think uh, and as a man I don't think that I know people who met him I sadly never did what a joy it would have been to to do so uh, but I'm told that he was a man of few words, but but basically you knew exactly where you stood with him. As a cricketer, obviously he was an all-round cricketer, probably better known for his batting because because of that um, that um, first ball, but also because of the um, he's the only Derbyshire player to score a century in a Test match for England whilst on the uh, the Derbyshire staff. He, he scored that against India. But he was a very powerful hitter until Chris Adams broke his record. He got the fastest century in terms of minutes uh, for Derbyshire. And he was a very, very powerful, strong hitter of the ball. Bold, brisk, medium pace. Um, and of course, had come from, uh, he'd been a, uh, an apprentice electrician um, in the colliery. I forget which colliery it was. Um, and then he went straight into the Bassett Law League, which was the, the league played up in the north of the county, and then straight into the, the nursery. So one assumes that he was uh, identified by Sam Cadman or, or some of his coterie uh, and brought to the, the nursery uh, fairly, fairly early. Unbelievable cricketer, unbelievable cricketer, unbelievable stats. And I think probably as much a heartbeat of that side as anybody because you've got the people like Copson who was a bit of a maverick as well uh, alongside Mitchell but I, I would imagine Worthington would be the absolute you can just imagine I mean there's a famous photo of the 1936 side and he sat there on the front row and all the team are lined up and it's not a, a formal picture with a trophy because there was no trophy but he sat there with a cigarette between his his middle finger and forefinger, you know. Um, he clearly had no desire to put it down. And, oh, we're having our photograph taken. Whatever you do, put your cigarette down. He's just sat there with a cigarette on. And it kind of, I, I really like it because it just sort of, the simplicity of it all, the sort of, you know, well, we're having our picture taken. But do, do you get do you get where I'm coming from? It's just a, it's a very strange thing to, to admire in somebody. But I just like the fact that, I guess even if his captain had put that out, he'd have probably ignored him. It's the nonchalance, isn't it? I think that's how I describe yeah. it. It's almost that that not really... It's not a case of not caring, but almost being too cool to care what other people think. I mean, I think that's quite a nice way mm. of, of describing him. And as I said, ever since I saw that stat, I think that actually does him a bit of a disservice, doesn't it, in terms of being known for that first baller at the Gabba, because he is one of Derbyshire's greatest yeah. ever cricketers. And... 
Griff, I know this is going to be a tremendously difficult question. It really is, because this could spark some debates amongst the Derbyshire faithful. But where would you rank Stan Worthington in terms of Derbyshire's all-time batting options? I'm guessing he'd be top 10. But if you could give him a specific numerical ranking, where would you place Stan Worthington? Wow. Um, I think... See, when during lockdown, Derbyshire asked everybody to pick their team. If you don't mind me going around the houses, because I'm going to try and get to, I'm going to try and get to an answer here. Um, Derbyshire's all-time eleven, and virtually everybody that was picked had played since 1980, uh, which is in common with with what happens when you ask people, because they they look at people they remember. I tried to look at it from a historical perspective, and so. For example, my my first pick it was um, uh, was William Mycroft because he took five hundred odd wickets at eleven, and and I couldn't I couldn't say how you could leave somebody out of a team with such a remarkable record, but I did include Worthington in my side because of his ability as an all round cricketer. So he's in my eleven, he's in my top Derbyshire eleven cricketers. So where do I put him in bat with batsmen? Probably, I can't really. Oh, he's in the top ten. I can't. I can't go any better than that because he's he's in, he gets in the top six, but he doesn't get in as a pure batsman. He'd probably be by number six as an all round cricketer. As an all round cricketer, that's the, that's the best I can give you. I'm sorry, Aaron. <laughs> you don't need to apologise, Griff. That was intentionally a very, very difficult question. <laughs> <laughs> Apologies about that. I was just interested to to know, really, because, again, it does go back to that. To, well, you've just mentioned it there about people going for people that they've they've recognised and seen. They don't really go for players, you know, Edwardian cricketers, for example, from my county of Warwickshire. People probably wouldn't mention players from the 1911 team, you know, the likes of Frank Foster, Frank Fields, yep. Willie Keith, guys like that. But yet they were almost the forefathers of the teams. It's important to recognise them. So apologies about the, the state of that question, Griff. It no, was very no, difficult. But No, it's all right because, because the, 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 the team that was, was selected as Derbyshire Auto included nobody from the 36 championships. Well, to not include Mitchell, if, you, if you're not going to include anyone, you've got to include Tommy Mitchell, who's the greatest spinner in Derbyshire's history, Tommy Mitchell. You know, it's it's it's, but it's not the fault of people who are looking at, at at picking their team because they're not necessarily historians who've looked back into the the dim and distant. It's rather like the TV channels now that, that talk about the Premier League, don't they? the greatest this since the Premier League began, conveniently conveniently ignoring a hundred years <laughs> of football that went before it. So it's okay. It's okay. Yeah, a lot of people have had that debate, haven't they, when it comes to football. People don't, for, for some reason, they don't, it's almost not appreciating or accepting the fact that there was football before the Premier League. I've had many a debate about that. It's like people just completely do away with the first division as though it wasn't a thing. But we won't get into that debate because, again, we can add an extra couple of hours onto the podcast recording time. But Griff, going back onto that season then, let's start to talk about the conclusion of the season itself and... First and foremost, that Somerset game. Because it is interesting. Usually when you see a county championship winning team, they usually win a game like that, don't they? To lift yep. the title, to become the official county champions, they usually win the game and then obviously the celebrations ensue afterwards. But as you mentioned, they lost that game 
by one wicket against Somerset's at Road and Road in Wells. What can you tell me about that game? What actually happened during it? Why did Derbyshire lose that game? Well, they went into it knowing that provided they avoided defeating one of them, because they've got two games to come, they'd win the title. So um, although it was a bit awkward losing that game, they knew that they, if they drew, at least drew at Oakham, uh, they'd be they'd win the title. And how strange, of course, that the last two games of the season were played at Wells and Oakham. You know, we're mm. talking sort of real... I've been to Oakham to see Derbyshire play about 16 years ago. Uh, Wells, of course, no longer used. Um, but the team went... Um, we won the toss... Um, and Derbyshire batted first. Uh, yes, Derbyshire batted first. Dennis Smith got 90-odd. Uh, Derbyshire all out for just over 200. Uh, Somerset 116 for five at the close. And we had a lead of 70. So absolutely situation normal. Uh, you've got Pope and Cops and Tommy Mitchell. You, you can't fail. You score 216, you get a lead of 70. Uh, but then Derbyshire, by the close of the second day, were 98 for seven. No, no, sorry, not 98 for seven. They, they were at 1.98 for seven, that's right. Um, and Somerset needed 2.71, I believe, to win on the final day, and were 90-odd for two. And the final morning, there was a very, very interesting exchange because uh, Tommy uh, Armstrong was uh, our secondary spin bowler. Uh, and he was uh, struck by the famous Arthur Wellard, who's, I say he's famous, he's known mainly, because I think he hit the record number of sixes in the season, um, a record that was broken by Ian Botham subsequently, if I'm, if I'm right, another Somerset cricketer. But he struck um, five consecutive sixes off Tommy Armstrong. Um, which I suspect was um, a bit of a surprise. The first ball, he just played it to short leg, no run, uh, and then smashed five sixes. Um, apparently, according to again to the, the newspaper reports at the time, uh, two of them rained down on some di disused pigsties in an adjoining field. And this is beauty of cricket writing. Um, he got 67 out of 77 in 45 minutes. And um, basically, they they held on and won by one wicket. Um, and so apparently, um, Richardson was irritated by this and was in no mood for humour, according to the uh, the newspaper of the day. Um, and some said that um, Richardson had, had had complained to his own son that there had been an overindulging in premature celebrations which, of course, wouldn't be the first time that, that people had, had done that. Um, but nonetheless, they'd got to go straight to Oakham um, for the next game. So I think they were somewhat chastised and chastened by the... Uh, chastised for the performance and chastened by it. Um, but you would have expected that formidable Derbyshire team to overcome a Somerset side who, who were relatively weak by comparison to you know, today. They're at one of the leading counties, but... Uh, but back then, Derbyshire would have expected to win. And so I'm sure that uh, that uh, Richardson would not have been best pleased on the train journey up to uh, up to Bristol and then um, through to um, to Leicestershire. Yeah, he doesn't seem like the, the kind of character who took losing very well, did he, no. Arthur Walker-Richardson? No, but, <laughs> but then again, I think that's what his players actually respected about him, didn't they? I mean, he might yeah. not have had that first-class century, but he had a... 
an uncompromising competitive attitude, didn't they? Yes, and I think that's that's why the the you know the whole it, it may have happened but happened by accident in the first place that that Guy Jackson took the side over in the twenties and then Arthur Richardson in the thirties. But I I think it probably was more by design because if you'd not given the captaincy to the to to Richardson, which one of the others would you have given it to? You know, would you have given it to? Worthington, who might have been too too much at the heart of the cricket, if you get my drift, because he was such a compelling member of the side with bat and ball. Maybe it was easier to just look who's who is the the one that we don't really expect too much from with bat or ball. Let him be the strategist. Let him be the manager. Let him be the person to lead these guys, um, and just let the rest of them just let them do their job. Let them do what they're paid to do, which was to to play really good cricket. So, yeah, he wouldn't have been impressed, I suspect. And as I say, the the, the fact that his son actually in later years did, did a, an interview and said my father was very, very displeased by the over... The, I think the, the, the celebrating a little bit early. Wouldn't be the first cricket to have a few beers, would it? You know, after you've you know you've set them two seventy to win and the ninety for two, and you think, well, we'll finish these off tomorrow. Let's have a few beers. Um, but there we are. <laughs> well, I suppose in the end, at least everything did work out for Derbyshire, didn't it? Ultimately, lifting the county championship in nineteen thirty six. And in terms of the conclusion of that season, now Griff, I wanted to touch upon two. Important events, I suppose, which capped off that season. First and foremost, what can you tell me about the Duke of Devonshire, a certain Victor Cavendish and his role at the end of the season? What did he do when when Derbyshire were lifted and, and crowned as the county champions? Well, they had a they organised a dance. Is this what you do? You, you already know about this? Yeah, they organised a dance. They got the Sherwood Foresters, of course, uh, who were the, the local regiment. And they had all the mayors from the local towns, so Ilkeston, Buxton, Derby, Glossop. Derby, of course, was a town then. Um, Burton, Burton on track. Yeah, all these players. And they all got together. The Duke of Devonshire held this huge um, uh, party, really, uh, with music uh, from the Sherwood Foresters for a dance afterwards. So one assumes the dance would have been a few military two-steps and a few waltzes and foxtrots and all that kind of thing. Um, uh, but the Duke, of course, would um, would then famously, and there is a picture of this um, in our archive, um, because we got players that were going on the tour to Australia, and of course players had been selected as Wisdom Cricketers of the Year, and the Duke uh, came, asked the, the players who had been selected, Copson and Worthington, to come up onto the platform and shake hands with him. Now, that was described as, you know, oh, you shook hands with these two cricketers. Well, you wouldn't, you'd, you'd do it now in a heartbeat, wouldn't you? wouldn't think twice about it. But back then, to have the Duke, this is 80-odd years ago, remember, invite a couple of coal mining cricketers up onto the, the platform to shake his hand. Must have been quite um, cap-doffing, I suspect, you know, unusual. Thankfully, you know, I think society, well, no, we've still got people. We've still got Duke of Devonshire. Um, but I can't imagine you'd ever invite a coal mining cricketer onto a stage in Muggs. We haven't got any. Um, but yeah, I suspect it was quite a party. <laughs> well, yeah, that's why I asked about it, to be honest. I was interested to to learn a bit more about that uh, that particular event afterwards. I, I wouldn't have been able to describe it in as much detail, but 
that was something I was very, very interested to <laughs> to read up on. And then the other thing as well, which was at the conclusion of that season, and I wanted to learn a little bit more about this as well, Griff, the gold watches. Now, mm. this was the the big prize, I suppose, the big the award almost, the accolade of their achievements were these gold watches, which had the name, the dates, and the championship title engraved onto them. So in terms of those watches, first and foremost, why were they given those watches? Why why gold watches as a present, first and foremost? And secondly, do we still have any of those watches available? Have the families of those cricketers actually kept them? Right. Um, well, there were a number of things that were made um, and handed to the, the 36 side. So, for example, each one of them was given a case, uh, a leather case, brown leather, um, not a giant size suitcase, but bigger than a briefcase. And that had embossed upon it the initials of uh, the cricketer. And we have got one of those in our archive. And that was the one that belonged to A.E. Alderman, Albert Alderman, who was an opening batsman, one of the top eight that didn't play for England, actually. Um, and each player was also given a watch. And there is one in the Derbyshire uh, archive. And that one is engraved AFS. Now, that was Alan Skinner, who um, played only a couple of games that season, but nonetheless received a watch. And, um, yeah, on the back of it, it says Champion County 1936. And then just the initials are engraved in a kind of a quite a swirly font. It's, it's quite decorative. Uh, and then something we haven't got in the archive, but which I've seen, because Dennis Smith, uh, Alderman's opening partner, uh, from Summercoats, his daughter is still alive. And we had an exhibition a few years ago at uh, the museum in Ilkeston. And she brought along a silver cigarette box or cigar box. And on that was engraved, congratulations to, uh, and it was for each player, Dennis Smith on winning the county championship with Derbyshire from all at Derby County FC. So the football club, um, and had these made. So there, 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 were, there, were, there were watches, there were cases, and there were the, these silver cigarette cases. Um, maybe one day one of them will come into the club's possession um, in due course, but, um, but at least we've seen one and photographed it. But yeah, they, they all got, to, that, that's what all of them got. And sadly, I did speak to someone, they'll remain anonymous, who said, oh, those cases, yeah, oh, I had one of them. I chucked it out with all this other stuff. And... <laughs> I was almost on the floor. I thought, oh, I can't believe you. Because these are got 86 years old. Nothing, you know, we've only got one. I can't, well, maybe, maybe there's still another one or two in circulation, but it'd be a surprise if they are. Uh, but yeah, one watch, one case, and, and I've seen one of the cigarette cases. Well, at least we've got some. I suppose mm. it's it's better than nothing, but goodness me, that's a heartbreaking story, isn't it? About the oh, oh, oh and a telegram, of course, because the Duke sent a telegram uh, to uh, to Alf Pope um, on, on uh, while he was at Wells, well, when they won the title. So we've got and we've actually got that original telegram that was donated by the Pope family. So that's in our archive at uh, at Derby. Wow! See again, that's a cool little tidbit, isn't it, from the past. Mm. The look, just does, look congrats, congrats on winning title. Stop Devonshire. That's it. Probably cost <laughs> is that it? <laughs> yeah, it's a very short one. He wasn't going to spend too much money, I don't think. <laughs> 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 a penny a word or whatever it was. I don't know. 
Mm, I suppose. Short but succinct to the point. It is incredible, really, having these little artefacts of county cricket seasons gone by. And I'm glad that the club have got some in the archives because, as I said, it was interesting to to learn about those presents. And, yeah, it's good that we've we've kept them, keeping that yeah, heritage. Yeah, the one, the one I've never seen and the one I'd love to have seen was um, the captain was given um, a silver cigarette case and that was uh, inscribed with the signatures of the championship side and the dedication simply said, to the skipper from the lads. You know, it did nothing like, you know, sort of uh, in recognition of your great leadership, to the skipper from the lads, which again kind of sums them up, doesn't it? It's a bunch of unassuming coal miners who happen to be really good at cricket. And they wanted to just give their gaffer something, you know, to the skipper from the lads. Brilliant. I wonder, I mean, obviously, um, there is a Richardson clan within the the county still. It'd be interesting to know if um, if it's that case is still around. But we, I've no idea. But I'd love to have seen that. It would be incredible if it was still around. And if it is in the one in 10 million shot that it is out there and someone knows where it is, it would be lovely to see that, wouldn't it? Absolutely. That'd be like the Holy Grail, I suppose, for you, wouldn't it, Griff? Uh, yeah, because, well, yeah, because there was no trophy. Um, as you probably know, the, the, the well, I, knew, I don't know when a county championship trophy was actually made. That's a, something perhaps to uh, to have a look up one of these days. But, yeah, I've uh, I've no idea. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I, I, if, I can't imagine anyone would ever know um, where one of those is, but there you go. If, if anyone's seen it and they're listening to this podcast, give me a shout. And me as well, to be fair. I'd be very interested to to see that. I wonder where it is. That is, again, one of life's great mysteries. Where mm-hmm. is Arthur Walker Richardson's silver cigar or cigarette holder? Yeah. Only time will tell. Maybe one day we'll have the answers. But Griff, to end and cap off what's been a fascinating episode of the podcast, and I'm so, so happy that I chose you for this episode absolute expert when it comes to this 1936 team just one final rather profound question to wrap up this pilot episode what legacy did that team leave behind because when you think about the the stats which we've read out obviously there were some incredible individual accolades and achievements from some of those players but in the wider context as well of county cricket they were just the second county outside of that traditional big six aside from Warwickshire in 1911, to lift the county championship. And again, those teams would dominate until 1948 when Glamorgan became the next team to break that glass ceiling. And the other big thing, I suppose, to this day, 2022, this was the first and to date only ever Derbyshire team to lift English cricket's ultimate prize. What legacy did the likes of Arthur Walker Richardson, Stan Worthington, William Copson, what legacy did these guys leave behind in the East Midlands County of Derbyshire? Well, I think their their legacy was was both short-lived, if this doesn't sound paradoxical, both short-lived, but also it, it ran for a long time. It was short-lived in as much as the war came along, the Second World War came along, at a time when most of these players were either reaching their peak or past their peak and therefore the second world war really ended their careers as professional derbyshire cricketers with the exception of course people like uh, george pope played a little after the war dennis smith played after the war um but i think their 
overall impact certainly this this idea that you could whistle down a coal mine and get a fast bowler um which which had been talked about for a long time particularly in derbyshire and nottinghamshire um continued through post-war because cliff gladwin les jackson uh, then came into the derbyshire side and in actual fact Dennis Smith, of course, was the county coach for many years, right up until 1970. So his his reputation, he was very taciturn, didn't say a lot, but was, again, well thought of. His his connection to the 36 side was continued for another 20 or 30 years during his coaching period at Derbyshire. But I think also the sides that came along after that um, certainly almost mirrored the side of the 30s. In other words... Although Donald Carr was a very stylish batsman, he again relied heavily on a strong pace attack with a batting lineup that was modest at best, apart from himself. Similarly, when Guy Willett, before him, was the captain, he was another one who had a strong bowling unit. Edwin Smith was his spinner, not, not as good as Tommy Mitchell, but took over a thousand wickets for Derbyshire. But they had pace bowlers, not just Les Jackson and Cliff Jack, uh, Gladwin, but Brian Jackson and Harold Rhodes then came to the fore. So it was the same kind of approach to the game as had been um, embodied in that 1930s team. And I think even if you go forward, and I did talk to Kim Barnett about this, because Kim, when he became captain, uh, was very keen to stop Derbyshire from being the rubbing rags of county cricket. And he did occasionally uh, talk about how Worthington, what Worthington must have been like as a cricketer and what Tommy Mitchell must have been like. Because his view was, I want to build a team based on character. It's one thing to have talent, but character in the end trumps everything. If you've got, if you've got some skill, obviously, you can't, you can't have 11 people who are just keen but rubbish. And so I think that those traits of that 30 side if not the precise legacy going forward has been carried forward but i think the traits have the 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 way in which to win the how to win and right up to date you know we began with mickey arthur talking about you know what has he done well you've got to stop derbyshire losing first of all and then you've got to start finding a way to win and you've got to use the tools that you've got and Derbyshire aren't the biggest county. They haven't got the most amount of money. So they're not going to be able to go and buy success. So you've then got to look to character. You've got to look to, to your strengths and what they are. And Derbyshire, really, the only reason they didn't win the championship again through the 50s was because of that unbelievable Surrey side, um, you know, that had the most astonishing bowling attack and wonderful batsmen. Um, if Derbyshire had just had a Peter Mayer, a Ted Dexter, during during the 50s or the 60s then they probably would have won the title because they did finish you know routinely in the top four five six seven um so yeah i, th I think legacy I, it will the coal fields will never go away because they're still there even if no one's digging anything out uh, and the fact that these great cricketers were largely from the coal fields in our county i think that legacy for me anyway it still stands today um, they were a gladiatorial team, as John Arlott said. And I don't think we have seen the like ever since. I don't think, I think we've seen wonderful teams, incredibly, uh, your side in 1994 that won three out of four trophies. Absolutely wonderful side. But that gladiatorial, that, that I'm not sure that that word could be applied to another county side since. And 
that's something to be proud of and that is a great great legacy it is indeed griffins can i just say as well it has been an absolutely brilliant episode of the counts cricket podcast i think that's a lovely way to wrap up what's been a brilliant pilot episode and it is great to know that the, the spirit of 1936 still very much exists within the county of Derbyshire and, of course, at Derbyshire County Cricket Club. So, yeah, I'm absolutely delighted to have learned about them today. And, of course, wishing Derbyshire all the very best heading into the future. Under Mickey Arthur, the years that follow, who knows, maybe one day they could replicate the success of that team in 1936 and get their hands on English cricket's ultimate prize. But David Griffin, that is pretty much it for today's episode of the County Cricket Podcast. Before we say our final goodbyes for the show, do you have anything to plug or promote? Any social media channels, websites, anything like that? Well, my own social media chat, I use Twitter, um, at dgriffinpicks. Um, I post there every single day because I, I do a, a Derbyshire project, basically. Um, I do a few videos on there and uh, a bit of wildlife, actually, sometimes, but it's predominantly cricket. It's predominantly cricket. And uh, yeah, it's, I'm always happy to welcome new followers and, and, and any engagement people want to have, uh, as long as they're polite, because I try to be, uh, I'm happy with that. And can I just say that this has been a really, really fascinating exercise. Um, you've been very kind about me and about Derbyshire, and um, it's been a pleasure to do it, and I hope it's well received. Thank you. I'm sure it will be, Griff. I've absolutely loved every single minute. I'm just looking at the time. We've been on for over 70 minutes for the recording it's absolutely flown by but again that's just a testament to how interesting it's been and listeners if you don't already follow david on social media in particular on twitter i mentioned those griff stats right at the start of the podcast if you are a cricket badger like i am brilliant they're one of the highlights of the day so go and follow david please 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 feel free to to do that at your own discretion i suppose that's how i'd describe it but that is pretty much it from us two here at the counter cricket podcast for today's episode to each and every single one of you wonderful listeners out there thank you very much for tuning in and as always guys we'll see you on the next one